In case you were wondering, why is it not Pastor Jason here up here today? By way of commercial, we switch time slots or day slots, as you would see it. Um, but we've come very far, believe it or not, even though the last time we were here, Pastor JP closed out chapter one. Nonetheless, we have arrived at the next portion of the Gospel of John, of which we now and with good intention will see forward the workings of our master and his earthly ministry. Ah, be it today. We now arrive at chapter 2. And of this chapter, we'll be looking at verses 2, 1, sorry, verses 1 through 11, of which the scripture reads, On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. By verse 3, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, What business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. By verse 5, his mother said to the servants, Whatever he tells you to do, do it. Now there were six stone water pots standing there for the Jewish custom of purification containing two or three measures of each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. By verse 9, When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called the groom. And by verse 10, he said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the guests are drunk, then he serves the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. By verse 11, this is the beginning of his signs. Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Shall I now let to the Lord our God in prayer? Father, we do thank you for this Sabbath day that you've given us, and we are mindful that you have provided us to be here, able-bodied, to glorify your Son. Be with thy servants as you feed and teach your sheep, and let them have a childlike love and a willing mind to receive the word that is being spoken of today. In Christ, most holy and precious name we pray. Amen. Also, as a good Presbyterian, and as JP taught us, we should always be prompt with a time clock. Now, albeit we have now come to John 2, I am going to serve this sermon not only just to provide context and the exegesis of the first 11 verses, but it's actually going to be an introduction. Now, as you've seen before, you said, well, pastor, you've done an introduction to the gospel book in itself. Why is there a need of another introduction for chapter 2? Well, chapter 2 is actually a well-documented grouping for chapter 3 and 4 
in the way that it's being projected. Why? Because what you are going to witness and find is that the God-man in all his glory is coming to make known what was concealed in the old. In fact, that is the most easy and most elaborate way I can actually state this. Now, I want to preface this before I begin. Because, like I said, chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4 really can be seen in one particular grouping. When I was last here, I provided you an exegesis on verses 29 to 34 of John 1. And in this, I showed that after the 30 years of him being concealed, not so much away from the world because we realize by the accounts in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in particular Matthew and Luke, we see the genealogy and the workings of Christ, in particular of his childhood. So it wasn't that as if he wasn't so much as to be out and about, but this is just so much to know that he would take on that official title and start his earthly ministry. Because of this, now, at verse 29, I bring to you by remembrance, John the Baptist states, and I quote, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. No, he doesn't say so much as the Christ or the anointed one as the apostle John showed with the prologue. But nonetheless, he makes a point to emphasize the office and the role on which Christ, the mediator of the new covenant, is to take upon. Now, this might sound like a not, but trust me, it is not. For note, for him to call him the Lamb of God is to show, especially to those who were around, because remember, there was always an audience with John the Baptist. This was an understanding to them that you always look for outward signs. You always look with your eyes. Well, let me tell you, if seeing you see, this is the man of which is the Messiah, the anointed one. Behold, your sign is he is the Lamb of God. And to add to the latter clause, by which he states, takes away the sins of the world, the lamb was to take a sacrifice of which he alone can take. Now, you might be wondering, Pastor, sounds like you might be belaboring a point. Nope, I am not. Because you see, by broaching you with this introduction, I want to bring to your attention, words have meaning. This is what I want to make sure is conveyed and seeing when even the other pastors come up here and they exegete on the passages, especially as we're approaching chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. They all have meaning. They all have intent. They all have detail. So don't feel like you're getting lost in the schematics of what they're actually intending, but realize there should be harmony from the first chapter 
on to chapter 21. With that being said then, with that being said, when Pastor JP was up here, he closed chapter 1 and expounded on the first converts. But I bring to your attention again, especially John the Baptist. He is consistent in the way he conveyed and announced the Christ. Behold, by verses 35 and 36, as John was standing with his two apostles, he sees Jesus walk and he says, Behold the Lamb of God. Again, the consistency. It's not lost, but it's trying to push a point. Especially note that this gospel was written by John the Apostle to the original churches of which he was bishoping. If that is the case, then, oh, I hope you are excited for where we're going to go. Because, you know, I noted that as I'm listening to various others try to exclaim this whole process, especially of John 2, I know a lot of times they're more worried about Christ trying to make sure people weren't drunk. I was like, then you kind of lost the detail. If you were so much as to worrying that Christ comes and saved the day. You've lost again the detail. In fact, I even bring this to your attention. Could you imagine the God-man being at your own wedding? And officiating it. I don't think people would know what to do with that. But I'll let that simmer as you Think about this. But nonetheless, what we're arrived to right now is this phraseology of which the old in which it was concealed is now revealed in the new. For when we note in the prologue, we saw God's eternal existence. And then we see that in him was life. And then by the latter portion of the prologue, we even see a man was prepared and set up to prepare the way. So of which, I'm going to bring your attention back just to this point. Pastor JP had brought and exegeted on verses 17 and 18, but I want to bring your attention back to verse 17. And it states in John 1, 17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. You see, this is where we're heading towards. And I bring this up because Calvin brings up an interesting note in regards to this concealment that's in the old but now realized in the new. And I'm not even going to paraphrase. I'm going to note what he states verbatim. He states, For so highly was Moses esteemed by the Jews that they could hardly receive anything that differed from him. But John the Apostle shows how inferior the ministry of Moses actually was to the power of Christ. For at this, this comparison sheds no small luster on the power of Christ for the utmost possible Difference 
was to render to Moses by the Jews, John the Apostle here reminds them that Moses is exceedingly small when it comes to the grace of Christ. And of this, it will be no hindrance but of exclamation that they are expected to receive from the law only what they can obtain through Jesus Christ alone. This is the pattern of which I want you to see. In fact, it's just to give and give you some context here. The law was nothing more than a shadowy image of spiritual blessings to come. Pastor JP just iterated on, give us this day our daily bread. Not to give us too much, not to give us too little, but just enough. But note here, note here, if it were so that in this petition in particular of the daily bread that we are given, it is upon Christ and Christ alone can we feed. So therefore, bringing it all back full circle here, Moses was given the law in so much that if the Jews obeyed and obeyed perfectly, they will seek a blessing. For even recall, at times, and I've brought this once at almost ad nauseum, the long, young lawyer who came to the Messiah and stated, what should I do to uh, obtain eternal life? And the Lord in kind gave him the law. But in summations, by some accounts, or the second tablet of the law. Well, the lawyer being so pompous, thinking that he's done as what uh, Moses command is thinking, well, I have done all of these. Why do I still lack? So, aha, by test, what does he do? He then says, give to the poor and come and follow me. But, uh, 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 he went away grieving. He probably even went crying in some accounts because he had too much. Clearly, he wasn't content with the daily bread that God had given him. Well, as I brought up to this before, the law that was given with Moses is a spiritual blessing, but it just was a shadowment to what was to come. And by this, Calvin not only backs this up, but also Paul. I bring your attention, if you have your Bibles and you're taking note, Go to Colossians 2.16. Note how Paul puts some of this into even better detail. Watch as he conveys. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or new moon or Sabbath day. But note by verse 17, things which are only a shadow of what is to come. The substance now belongs to Christ. For by verse 18, take care that no one keeps defrauding you of the prize by delighting in humility or in the worship of angels or taking his stand on visions for he has seen, for he inflate without cause his fleshly mind. Sounds a lot like the lawyer now, doesn't it? And by verse 19, not holding firm to the head from whom the entire body 
being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments, they grow only from God. When Pastor JP was going through the latter closing of chapter 1, and he was going through the narrative of Nathaniel's conversion, by verse 45, note what Philip says to Nathaniel in regards to seeing that this truly is the Son of God. By verse 45, in John 1, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses wrote in the law. And just not at Moses to show the harmony through them all. The prophets also wrote Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Now, I bid you this, upon Nathaniel's character being made note by the Christ in John 1, 47-49, Christ makes it very clear, though, to Nathaniel, you should not be amazed at what I've just told you and exclaimed to you. Why? I mean, the Messiah said, and I quote by verse 50, he said, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? I've given you a sign to show you believe? Huh. You haven't seen nothing yet. For there are greater things than these. And what is to make note of this? Because you see, as I bring this intro into a close... By what Philip stated by verse 45, by what John the Baptist stated by verse 36 and 29, and then what the apostle is stating in this gospel book by verse 17, our Lord will repeat twice, especially if some interpretations you have verily, verily, in the New American Standard you have truly, truly. But nonetheless, it is all a set and a turn to how important this manner is. To show that Christ truly is the Son of God. And with that being said, to show the harmony from the old, as the apostle was showing with Moses, to now being realized with Christ being here. Let us now approach chapter 2. With this being said, we have here, the chapter starting on the third day. And we see here that there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Now, I am a man of great detail only because as I was coming through my education, I always found out even the most smallest details are important. But in this particular instance, I actually wanted to pack the two statements together by verses two, or verses one and two. The reason being is one, I want to bring together the understanding of the significance of the time. So as you can note here, John the Apostle notes here a particular day, a third day. I want to bring to your attention that in this in that day and age, especially when it comes to certain festivities, I will assume there's always a reason to be celebrating. In fact, I found out, I believe yesterday was International Coffee Day. If you look in the calendar, there's always a day for something in this modern day and age. 
But nonetheless, of the context, and at that time, it was understood. You did not want to mix one joy with the other. I mean, you kind of think about it. If you had a wedding on the day of Christmas, <laughs> you got to celebrate two things, right? The kids want toys, and then all of a sudden, you're going to receive your wedding gifts by 5 o'clock in the afternoon, depending if you have your weddings that late. But nonetheless, you can see the concept that I'm bringing here. Joys were not thought to be mixed with one another. Now, this particular joy was one of a man who will seek for his wife. In that day, it was customary of old to give a timetable to the wedding. In our day, in comparison to that, it is the engagement period. You go ahead, you make that announcement to her, if she agrees to go, usually verbally, sometimes you got to have a contract in this day and age, but normally verbally to agree to be in one union, you also have to work some of the kinks out. Now, the reason why I say this is because the day also gives a time and period to the when the Sahedrin was visiting various cities. So you had in particular an event so much as this where somebody, man and wife, is coming together in union. And the officiate, which is the officers, would visit city by city and have it planned. Nonetheless, through this time, there are provisions to be made. For example, if the husband is going to dispute that, hey, I paid a dowry and my wife is supposed to be a virgin and she is not, this still gives him time to also make that uh, report. But nonetheless, it is a provision of which it allowed the Sahedrin to visit various cities. And historically, even through the Reformed faith, it was understood on the second and the fifth day of the week, they will venture to various cities, depending on how the week rolled in the Hebrew calendar. Of this, we can see that they were going to be present in the city or in Cana, which resided in Galilee. Now, with that all being said, the second portion of the verse, because I'm going to go back to, to um, I'm going to go back to and try to circle both the latter clause of, chap of verse one and verses two. But I want you to know, the scripture states that Jesus was invited. Sometimes you would think, well, the God man is present here. Can he not officiate my wedding? <laughs> I mean, we would want the blessing and the exhortation, right? He should probably be the one who says, I bring these two together. Technically he did, but I bring these two together amongst everyone. No, scripture shows of the presence and the position of which he took at the ceremony. But aha, his mother, on the other hand, <laughs> hold a principal host or officiate for the ceremony. Details like these are kind of important. Why? Because it's going to play, especially when we get to the next portion of the verses in regards to the dynamic of how she speaks with her son. And boy, oh boy, does this become an interesting topic. <sighs> for behold, segueing now to verses three and four 
And I will read this for verbatim. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And by verse 4, the Messiah said to her, What business do you have with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. Now, <laughs> if a humanist is looking at this and saying, Well, I read here that Jesus admonished his mother. You tell me he fulfilled the law. It looks like he violated the fifth commandment by not honoring his mother and father. Oh, contraire, mon frère. That is not true. Four. In the first verse, like I said before, we have the position that Jesus' mother, which I, I'm going to say is Mary because we all should be full aware of who she was, but she took on a holy role with the ceremony of the wedding. Actually, if you read and you think even sometimes the way we have our own humanist uh, dynamics and discussions, she's having anxiety. We have no more wine. We ran out. So she's frantically like thinking, I need help here. Now, I want to bring to note that the mother and Jesus both accompanied the wedding. Where's Joseph? Now, this is not to speculate on any conditions of which Joseph would have been there. But actually, I come to find out that he may have passed away. In fact, when we get to the portion of Christ's humiliation on the cross, it is in this very same gospel by John 19, 26 to 27, as he stood, as he hung there and saw his mother and John the apostle, the disciple whom he loved, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And by verse 27, he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that day point, John the apostle took Mary into his own home. So details I did not want to leave or segue out from this. Because normally such positions in regards to ceremony, thing of the nature was one of a man of a, of a household. But looks like Joseph wasn't present. So Mary's freaking out, frantically finding out, like, I have no wine. So it is proper and logical to understand she went to her son. Now, it's also proper and logic to understand she know who that man was. Now, albeit in his admonishment of his mother, if we want to look at it that way, given the tone, especially of the words and some versions of the account, not so much that it's lost, but the preposition of it, you can get the fact that he's he is not happy that you're coming to me with this. And you can see that by the latter clause, my hour has not yet come. Was it to th think, though, that he did not know he was going to do this? It wasn't so much that he did not know. Like I said, the understanding here is that she went wrong by going beyond what she thought she can do by just commanding the God-man to do an act. That's where the problem lied. For I bring to your attention just how the Messiah is seeing her apparent anxiety. 
that she displayed at the inconvenience of not having wine. And then, note, in that custom of being in a marriage, you were of one group, as everybody knows. You either related to the bride or you're related to the groom. And in this circumstance, especially after we had read uh, the verse before coming to the exegesis and the breakdown, we see that he was of the bridegroom side. So great embarrassment was going to come to this man for lack of preparation. But I bring you these details because it's not to belabor on the point of the actual wedding. It's to show the improper bounds that Mary took to convey to the Godman, we have no wine. Now, in her virtue, it was just placated on her frailty. She doesn't know what to do. I mean, granted, her husband's not there and her son is there. And albeit, I seek your help. But the Messiah understands and knows. And of which he makes this communication. He wants her to understand that I do things on my accord to the glory of my father. It is not for you. It's not to be, I'm not here to help you with your inconveniences. That's not what this is for. There is a time and a place for everything. When we are going through the catechism lesson on prayer, wasn't one of the aspects of it was trust? And with trust, that means God is never late, nor is he ever too early. So here, she put forward her own desires. She wasn't looking to see what he would do. I mean, kindly, she could have even abroached the situation and stated, what should we do? But that's not the adage of which the apostle makes note here. For by even her own answer, she shows her obedience. So she corrects herself quickly. And be it as it may, she doesn't know what he's going to actually do. Which is why, as we segue to verses 5 through 7, Mary said to the servants, whatever he tells you to do, do it. So, in our own thinking, our own aspects, if we do what God commands, he will bless us. But, again, I'm not going to let you worry, belabor on some points. What I want to make sure and convey is that Christ understands and he knows our frailties. It is not on us to ever think, whether through prayer, whether through some sort of think or thought that you may have tried to sense in your faith that you can control him at your whim. It doesn't work that way. He operates at his own time because he deserves the glory. And like I said, the greatest event that they ever beheld was that he walked among them face to face. So, by the next point of the details here, as we are in verses 5 through 7, we note by verse 6, there were six stones and water parts, sorry, water pots standing 
there for the Jewish custom of purification. And mind you, they weren't empty, they were full. For the latter clause states, they contained two to three measures each. <laughs> now note, as the apostle is making note of the six water, part, water pots, he wants to know also the aspect of the audience at hand. Now, let's go back memory lane. John the Baptist is baptizing many and he's growing an audience. And I broached this to you when I was going through verses 29 to 34 of John 1. So as our Lord's about to take on a miracle and a fact, well, I don't know about you, but six large water pots should feed a certain number of people. Historically, it was estimated that there may have been 150 in attendance for the wedding. But these water pots just didn't stand there as a place to hold water. It actually served as a decoration for the wedding. So yes, they also had lavishes weddings in the Old Testament. It is not uncommon, as we have today, where people go into debt for twenty dollars or $30,000 to have a wedding. And I know some has been in $100,000, but they were thinking the same thing. This is my wedding day. I have to have the best of the best. <laughs> well, again, the Jews always needed signs. They always need those outward signs to know that God's blessing was here. So pots that were being used for Jewish purification, as you can see, by which the apostles making note in this chapter, we must have it at our wedding. We must use it. And you know, it's funny. The ceremony of washing that the pots were supposed to be used for has nothing to do with the wedding. In fact, the pots were so expensive and so lavish it's understood that that's why they were there. But oh, the Jews, always needing outward signs. The Messiah and his all wisdom were thinking, I'm going to show you what I'm going to do with these water pots. So, as we continue by verse number seven, he tells the servants, after they were commanded by the host to do whatever her son said, because when he spoke, the time came. That's the important detail. It was now time to show to them his divine power. So then you can see by verse 7, when he says to them, fill the water pots, water pots with water, they filled it up to the brim. They were already filled with water, but no, the command was fill them to the brim. Put more water in there. So they filled it up. But what, what, why would the Messiah need the water to be added to a pot that already had water? It was because what you're going to expect is the unexpected. For, as we now segue to show his divine power in verses 8 and 9, he states, draw some out now and give it to the head waiter. And they did. And they took it to him. <laughs> now, when the head waiter tasted the water, as the scripture states, which then had become to wine, he did not know it was water. 
But note the latter clause. In, in some of your accounts in your, in your Bibles, you will see it in, in block parentheses, but I won't go into so much the schematics about that. But the servants who had drawn the water knew. They knew. They were up front, close and personal to see a change of what came in and then what came out. It's amazing. Historically, when looking at this verse, it's understood that since he was the master of the feast, it would be charged to him to make sure that the whole ceremony was going as planned. But what was interesting was when the Christ charges the servants to give to the master of the feast the drink. It was approved to the servants to tell them, you're witnessing this miracle firsthand. For note what the headmaster states by verse 10. Every man serves the good wine first. And when the guests are drunk, then he serves the poorer wine. But you've kept the good wine till now. You see, the headmaster only saw the outward sign. But it's like the verse stated in verse number nine, the servants knew it was water. And to bring all this into full circle, the sign and the miracle of which God is taking water and then changing it into wine, the institution of the Lord's Supper is coming into effect here. Four, the Jewish custom of purification and thinking. And if you want to note where this purification law kind of stems from or where there's some sort of uh, branch, olive branch 2 in the old, you can look at Leviticus 11, 32 to 35. But in those ceremonies in which the Jews, and that's just an example, there's more, but in particular, this one will be more apparent. But in the ceremony in which the Jews were doing these washings, it's again an outward sign. It's again in work on which they were thinking, well, we use this as a way of the law in terms of purifying ourselves in front of God. But mind you, the Messiah seeing this takes what they thought to be something that was of a outward sign and blessing and completely shifted it to a sign of which. By verse number 11, this is the beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana, to reveal his glory. Why that's an important statement is because it goes back to how Mary first reacted with him. And her anxiety, thinking that she had an inconvenience, she thought she could move the Messiah at the snap of a finger. But by his statement to reveal that my will is of the Father and not yours, she showed quick correction by ascertaining everyone who was there to do what he said. So, I bring this all because as we're going to continue in this chapter, 
you're going to see more and more signs. In fact, at the end of chapter four, it's going to tell you, especially as you get through chapter four, it's going to tell you these are the second signs. That's all the Jews were given, signs and signs and signs. But they didn't understand. Because by what? Chapter three, you must be born again. Everybody's looking at a wedding. Everybody's looking at water being turned into wine. But by verse 11, the sign is understood of why this took place. So his glory will be revealed and many will believe in his name. There is harmony here. And all these verses are going to show that. From the old, Jeremiah 31 through 34 talks about the new coming of the covenant. And I didn't just say that the new the, the wine that the headmaster was drinking was the actual consecrated bread. Uh, I'm sorry, the wine that goes with the bread in the Lord's Supper. It was meant to show, look, as we're now transitioning from the old and to the new. To show harmony from Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, if you have your Bibles, you can open it to Hebrews 8. And I want you to see in focus that the first sign we saw with the wedding in Cana is just a sign of many things to come as we get through the chapters. Note by verse number one in, in Hebrews 8. Now the main point in what has been said in this, we have such a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. By verse two, a minister in the sanctuary and the true tabernacle which, set, which the Lord set up, not for man. By verse three, for every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Sounds very familiar by what we're going through in the Gospel of John now, doesn't it? So it is necessary that this high priest have also something to offer. Now, if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer gifts according to the law. But by verse number five, those gifts, according to the law, serves as a copy and shadow of heavenly things. For just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, for, quote, see, he says, that you make all things by the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain by verse number six. But he now has obtained a more excellent ministry to the extent that he's the mediator of a better covenant, which is enacted on better promises. By verse number seven, which in detail is a reading of Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, it states, For if that first covenant had been free of fault, no circumstances would have been sought for the second. For by verse number eight, for in finding fault with the people, he goes on to read Jeremiah 31. 
And for the sake of time, I won't be able to read it, but by close of Hebrews 8, he states in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. And think about that. We have this wedding in Canaan. And they're having these ceremonies and things of that nature. They have these pots and things of this nature. And all of a sudden, Mary is going frantic. He is positioning and showing through these signs to the Jews. You said you wanted signs. Well, here's your first one. I'm turning water into wine. Now, obviously, they did not know what that wine was going to be used for. But clearly, here's a show. His work after being consecrated with the baptism. He's now moving forward and instituting the sacraments. And note the blessing that the head, head, the head waiter takes to drinking of the wine. But he's just seeing an outward sign. The wine here is also representative of a miracle. And that's how we should see the sacraments in effect. With baptism, our hearts is a show to the world that we are changed and we are in newfound obedience to Christ and Christ alone. But then, upon taking the bread and the wine, we feed on Christ spiritually. What's so exciting is that we now can see the working of these signs and miracles at effect. And what better way did our Lord take by taking an audience of 150 people to show them nothing's impossible with God. I'm never late and I'm never early. And my hour will come. When we return, Pastor Jason We'll look to take to the remaining portions of chapter two. And I'm not saying to go into elaborate details as I did. I just want to broach you with this understanding that we're coming to a newfound view with the old covenant being taken away and the new covenant be now being established. So now seeing the aspect of this first miracle, ho oh, oh, ho, wait till you hear him talk about the temple. For you thought these pots were lavish. It took them some odd 40 years to build this temple. And you said you're going to do what to it? Huh. <laughs> it's like Pastor JP said, you haven't seen nothing yet. Shall we now let the Lord our God in prayer? <laughs> 